0: This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin, with support from New Zealand On the Air.
1: Hello and welcome to Heritage Matters, a programme both brought to you and sponsored by the Southern Heritage Trust. I'm Dougal Stevenson. In this programme, Sarah Gallagher looks at the shipwrecking of the SS Victory – Judy Southworth has been looking at an old medical compendium. Gregor Campbell studies an obscure poet, and Bill Southworth reports on an infamous 19th century judge. There were a surprising number of shipwrecks around the Otago coast in the 19th century. One may not have happened if someone had breath-tested the person in command on the bridge of the SS Victory in 1861. Sarah Gallagher from Heritage New Zealand has been studying how it ran aground on the beach that bears its name.
0: At the southern end of wind-swept Victory Beach on Otago Peninsula lies the remains of an early steamship, the SS Victory. The Victory wrecked shortly after leaving Port Chalmers en route to Melbourne on the 3rd of July 1861, the result of an intoxicated sailor being left in charge. Victory Beach, named for the wreck, runs the length of Makahoi, Wycliffe Bay, on the south east coast of Otago Peninsula. Set back from Victory Beach, Orkia is a large flat area first populated by the Waitaha people, followed by Kati Mamoy, who settled at nearby Papanui Inlet, and later by Kaitahu. The area is situated in what became the Tyroa Mount Charles Native Reserve, land that was retained after the Otago Purchase in 1844. The Victory was built in Dumbarton in Scotland in 1849 by the shipbuilders Denny Brothers. Denny Brothers built an assortment of vessels which, during the 1840s, provided ships that engaged in work along the coasts of the British Isles. Victory was a three-masted iron, single-screw steamer and spent her early years with the north-west of Ireland Steam Packet Company, conveying passengers and cargo. In 1858, the Intercolonial Royal Mail Company was formed to provide an exclusive monthly mail service between Sydney and the principal ports of the colony of New Zealand. The company comprised a fleet of four steam vessels, Lord Ashley, Lord Walsley, Prince Alfred and Airedale. Victory had a major refit in 1860 in preparation to join the fleet and was lengthened and refitted with two steeple engines generating 350 horsepower. Victory's interior was luxuriously decorated by Mrs Wright Andrea, with rich crimson velvet upholstery and walls hung with oil paintings depicting famous British battle scenes. She was fitted out with three saloons. Two were for women and were reported to be furnished with all the elegances of a boudoir. Perhaps more essential, Victory boasted a patented condensing apparatus to provide fresh water for passengers and crew. She was considered a magnificent specimen of naval architecture. Victory set sail from Melbourne for Port Chalmers on her first passage across the Tasman as part of the intercolonial Royal Mail Company fleet on the 16th of January 1861. The voyage took five days. Commanded by Captain James Toogood, Victory was the finest and fastest boat belonging to the company. With victory joining the fleet, the Littleton Times reported
1: there's no doubt that the increasing traffic between the two ports will amply repay the enterprise and energy of her owners and be duly appreciated by the colonists
0: at three thirty p m on third of July. Victory left Port Chalmers for Melbourne with the homeward bound English mail. Captain Toogood set course and was relieved by third Mate Thomas Sampson so he could take his dinner down below. Sampson was in turn relieved to take his dinner by George Hand, the chief mate, and within ten minutes, victory had steamed straight onto the beach at the southern end of Wycliffe Bay. Attempts to pull off from the beach were unsuccessful. To protect the boat, passengers and cargo, Toogood ran her further up onto the beach, sinking her hull eight feet Into the soft sand. During the inquiry into the wreck, Toogood recalled
1: I did not see the chief mate until about ten minutes afterwards. He was then coming up the bridge ladder, the one of the forepart of it. I asked him why he was not on the bridge. He replied that he had not taken charge and that he had not been on the bridge. Later, He stated in my presence and in the presence of the chief engineer and of the third mate that he had received charge of the vessel from the third mate. I accused him of being tipsy, which he denied. He could hardly stand. I then called the saloon passengers together for them to see him, and they all declared him to be drunk. I told him to go to his room and to consider himself under arrest. When the ship leaves harbour... After the anchors are stowed, it's the chief mate's duty to set the watch and the lookout.
0: The captain did not remain uncriticised. Some believed he was ultimately responsible, as he would not rely on the compass in an iron ship so close to shore, and shouldn't have left duty on the misty evening with a strong nor easterly blowing. There was also criticism for the lack of general discipline on the ship, exampled by the Provador's overly generous supply of liquor to the crew. Valued at over $3 million, Victory and its cargo was sold to R.B. Martin for $72,000. Martin formed the Steamship Victory Company to fund the floating of the ship, which, although stuck, remained undamaged. Turgut remained on the ship for the following year. He discovered some quartz-bearing gold and at one time hosted several artists who visited the victory, sketching her and the surroundings to record her removal. An ambitious plan to float the victory in July 1862 was explored. Mr Scott, an experienced engineer, arrived from Sydney with 12 hydraulic cylinders each capable of lifting 150 tonnes. In September that year, it was reported that the Victory had successfully been slewed round with her head to the sea. Things were looking up, but after managing to get her afloat, an unusually high tide and heavy swell came in, the chain cable snapped and Victory drifted ashore. At this point, Victory was declared a total wreck and sold for $25,000, after over a million dollars was spent attempting to float her. The remains of the hull, machinery, mechanical fittings, cabin fittings and furnishings were auctioned over the following months. Despondent, Captain Toogood returned to England as a passenger aboard the Witch of the Tees in January 1863. The only evidence of the victory that remains today is the flywheel, which is visible at very low tide, and the beach, which bears its name. The victory is an archaeological site and is a registered Category 2 historic place. You can find this story on Heritage New Zealand's list online at heritage.org.nz. This is Sarah Gallagher, reporting for Heritage Matters.
1: The internet is full of wacky ideas, particularly suspect medical claims, as Judy Southworth found out when she looked at an old compendium. There's nothing new under the sun when it comes to strange ideas about how to cure your ailments.
2: The Google search site was started in 1998. Before that, we relied on the advice of friends and family or visited a library. Some homes had a publication of household advice, often referred to as a compendium. These books contain information on dances, games, training and treating animals, diseases, anatomy, gardening, surgery and so on. Some of this advice is still applicable today, but some was unusual and even downright dangerous. From an early 19th century compendium comes the following. To improve eyelashes or restore them when lost by disease, cut off their forked gossamer points and anoint them with two parts ointment of nitric oxide and mercury to one part lard. Apply twice a day, washing after with warm milk and water. A never-failing cure for nervous headache is the simple act of walking backwards. Ten minutes is usually enough. However, it may require more than ten minutes if one is very nervous. If a person is struck by lightning, immediately strip the body and throw buckets full of cold water over it for 10 or 15 minutes. Foods were often adulterated, an example being coffee, which could contain roasted grains, roots, acorns, sawdust, burnt sugar and baked horses' and bullocks' livers. During the 1665 plague in London, schoolchildren were told to smoke cigarettes, which were thought to be a disinfectant. Similar thoughts may have been behind attempts to resuscitate drowned victims by dragging them from the Thames, stripping them, and using an enema to blow smoke into the person, often with bellows. A 1653 publication recommends peacock dung for convulsions and powdered earthworms for jaundice. Finally, Culpeper, in 1826, produced a work containing mainly information on how to preserve one's health, and cure common ailments by the use of herbs. However, his examples here don't involve herbs. For the bleeding of the nose, bind the arms and legs as hard as you can with a piece of tape ribboning that perhaps may call back the blood. The liver of a hare, dried and beaten into powder, cures all the diseases of the liver of man. Well, there you have it. There's some strange stuff on Google, but as you can see, in earlier times, there was even stranger stuff doing the rounds. This is Judy Southworth for Heritage Matters.
1: Many a poet is born to blush unseen and waste their verse on a desert air. Gregor Campbell has found a bard from Lawrence, maybe just such a one.
3: Otago, land of mists and poets, and sometimes Poets That Missed. Victorian New Zealand had gold and ambition. One of its ambitions was to become a literary nation, a nation of scholars, composers and poets. Many were the contenders for the cultural laurels and several people were lauded in their day for their contributions to the national literature. These days, much of it seems a strained attempt to imitate the writers of home, back in the Northern Hemisphere. It is, of course, all a matter of taste. Elizabeth Colville of Lawrence had all the characteristics of a great poet. Her subject matter combined the dramatic and the tender. It dealt with the great events and people of the day, but also had words for the people of Humble Station. It rhymed, it scanned, it was published in a book. It had all the qualities of great poetry except greatness. I present The Highland Brigade's Grand Parade March Ye sons of the mountains, sons of the brave, up, up with thy flag, from the heights let it wave. Long may it float over mountain and sea, tis a glorious flag, the flag of the free. Think of thy clansmen with many a scar, how fearless they fought with the dangers of war. Though wounded and bleeding, still onward they pressed till over their foes waved bonnet and crest. Chorus, march, ye brave, guilty lads, faithful and true, march with thy plaidies and bonnets, say blue, while the pibroch is sounding by mountain and glade, march to the march of the Highland Brigade. Ye sons of the mountain, sons of the brave, up, up with thy flag from the heights let it wave, how proudly it floats all over the world, Tis freedom or death where that flag is unfurled. Hark, tis the sound of the bugle you hear. The signal is given, the invaders are near. Haste to the battlefield, make them roll under. No foeman thy land of adoption shall plunder. Ye sons of the mountains, sons of the brave, up, up with thy flag from the heights that it wave. Long may it float over mountain and sea, tis a glorious flag, the flag of the free. Hark to the cannon lads, hear how they rattle. Up with thy colours, be foremost in battle. Foremost in battle, shout the war cry to the field brave Highlanders, conquer or die. Your humble researcher and editor, while doing his best to understand the political and historic context in which the above was composed, makes bold to note that when the flag of the free is unfurled as described, freedom or death might well be the conclusion of the people watching it wave from the heights of the land where they were born and which the brave Kiltie lads have decided to make their land of adoption. Dunedin's Evening Star was not impressed enough in 1886 by Elizabeth Colville's poetry to publish it, at least not at first. Eventually, it offered a taste of her work to the public under the headline, An Offended Poetess. A fortnight ago, we received some verses from Elizabeth Colville, who hails from Glenmore, near Tuapeka. They scarcely come up to our standard, and in returning them to the authoress, we counselled her to apply elsewhere if she was exceedingly anxious to see her lines in print. An early mail brought us an indignant reply from her. As it would be a pity that our readers should be denied the opportunity of gauging the calibre of the laureate of Glenmore, we append her remonstrance, which, were there a competition for prizes, would entitle her, if she had been a man, to one for impudence. I thank your kind advice. Methinks you penned it very nice, but already my songs are o'er the world, both through the witness and the herald. And more than them and that you'll find has printed songs that I have rhymed. And they'll be sang both near and far without the assistance of your star. You are wrong for once, I must confess. I'm not a poet, but a poetess. And in my book you'll get a corner like what Burns gave to Andrew Horner. The uh, reference to Andrew Horner is an obscure one and shows that, at least, Elizabeth knew her life of Burns. Twenty years later, Elizabeth's volume of poetry, Poems and Songs at Home and Abroad, was published. Some people loved it. A letter to the New Zealand Truth claimed that there is no doubt but that Mrs Colville has picked up the pen that Burns laid down. Her local paper, the Tuapaka Times, was equally enthusiastic, but shrank from placing her on the same level as Scotland's national poet. Elizabeth Colville's belief in herself and the quality of her works was strong, and this sometimes poet is impressed by that. Her subject matter was wide-ranging, including one bemoaning an influx of Chinese miners and market gardeners, which, shall we say, does not read well in this century. One characteristic of her self-confidence was the belief that the world's crowned heads could benefit from having a copy of her published works. The Evening Star, in 1908, was able to report. Mrs E. Colville of Lawrence, author of Poems and Songs on Home and Abroad, a copy of which she sent to the Emperor of Japan through the Japanese consulate at Sydney, has received a letter from the Consul General, Sydney, in which he says... I have the honour to inform you that I sent the book to the Minister of Foreign Affairs who presented it through the Minister of the Imperial Household to His Majesty. I have the honour to inform you further that His Majesty was pleased to accept the book and directed that its receipt be acknowledged with thanks. This is the fourth royal letter Mrs Colville has received in acknowledgement of copies of her books. Two were from Queen Alexandra and one from King Edward. The star may have had its journalistic tongue in its figurative cheek when referring to this as a royal letter. Elizabeth Colville died in 1912, four years after her letter from the Japanese consulate in Sydney. She was much mourned in her hometown of Lawrence, and the plaque on her grave in the local cemetery includes the word Poetess in its inscription. And it is only fair that she had the last word in the form of her preface to poems and songs on home and abroad. The authoress of this little work, so humble and obscure, writes not to suit the arrogant, but for the struggling poor. Let critics justly criticise, no matter what they say, one kindly thought from those oppressed, her labours will repay. And I have the honour to be, hopefully thinking kindly, Gregor Campbell for Heritage Matters.
1: Dudley Ward was a prominent 19th century Dunedin politician, magistrate and judge. His colourful private life and legal career made him stand out from the Stada legal
4: fraternity. This report from Bill Southworth. Dudley Ward was the son of a prominent English family. His father was a former governor of Salon, and Dudley, who had been educated at rugby and Oxford, went on to qualify in law at London's Inner Temple. Thus, when he stepped ashore in New Zealand in September 1854, he was already a qualified barrister. After practising law in the colony for just over a year, he was elected at the age of 28 to the New Zealand Parliament as a member for Wellington Country electorate. However, his campaign on the Hustings had a whiff of dirty politics about it. Dudley attacked his opponent for the seat by alleging he'd taken advantage of a man's insanity to buy a house and other things at less than a fair price. The New Zealand spectator and Cook Strait Guardian said, when covering one of Ward's election meetings, that he had been shown in
1: a very despicable light, whether as to practical ability or honourable sentiments, and was decidedly disapproved of by the majority of electors present. We consider it of the utmost importance to the public that Mr Ward's underhand practices as a mere tool and a puppet of Mr Brandon and the other executive offices of this province should be thoroughly exposed and offered to the censure
4: of public opinion. After a couple of years in Parliament, Ward became a magistrate and then a district court judge in Wellington and Wanganui. In October 1868, he was appointed as a temporary judge of the Supreme Court in Dunedin a city which by then had rapidly expanded in population following the Otago gold rush. For some years after that, he moved around the South Island as a district judge. He appears to have had a relaxed attitude to the supposed dignity of the court. On one occasion, an unnamed solicitor who came to Dunedin to defend a client appears to have had too much to drink over lunch. He tried to push into the hall where the court was sitting and a constable, who didn't realise he was a barrister, tried to push him out. He promptly punched the constable on the nose, and while counsel, witness and jury watched on in amazement, the two grappled and rolled on the floor, which naturally stopped proceedings. Judge Ward leaned back in his chair and roared with laughter, and the lawyer was able to take his seat. He soon came into conflict with his fellow judges. The cause of contention was the case of Henry Smythes a lawyer who sought registration in New Zealand despite a conviction for forgery in England. The Smythies' forgery, for which he'd served 12 months in Newgate Prison, was related to an attempt by him to recover unpaid fees from a client. It was considered by other judges to be a minor impediment and one ruled that his registration should go ahead. Ward overruled them and referred to them as having, quote, opened up the local profession to forgers and felons of Great Britain. This provoked an angry letter to Ward from the Chief Justice, Sir George Arney, which said, It is a hitherto unheard of
1: thing that a judge of the Supreme Court should undertake publicly to review and censure not their opinions, but the past official acts of other judges. It is an impropriety which, if not aggravated, is certainly not lessened by the fact that the judge who has alone ventured on such a proceeding is the junior of the whole bench, who has only sat for a short time
4: under a temporary commission. William Fox, the Premier of New Zealand, was a close friend of Ward and sided with him against the Chief Justice. The Law Society also opposed Smythies being admitted to practice law and a second court and the Court of Appeal refused to grant him admission. It was a stunning victory for Judge Ward. His acting Supreme Court judgeship over, he became a district court judge in Hokitika and subsequently a district court judge in other parts of the South Island. Ward, who was a broad-shouldered giant with flaming reddish hair and a bushy beard, had the nickname The Viking Chief. His physical strength was to stand him in good stead. In 1878, Timaru was hit by a series of big waves, possibly caused by a tsunami. And it played havoc with the ships moored there. Several were either smashed together or wrecked. Seamen from the ship were left struggling in the boiling seas. William Pember Reeves, who was in town with a rugby team, and who mistook District Court Judge Ward for an Irishman, takes up the story. There was a fairly large muster on the beach, amongst whom was
1: the judge of the District Court. A tall, auburn-haired Irishman, more than six feet in height, wearing a black silk hat and a long frock coat, dressed, in fact, for church. Suddenly, I saw him throw down his umbrella, loop a rope around his neck and dash into the surf, frock coat, top hat and all. Before he had gone fifteen steps, the breakers swept his feet from under him, knocked him full length and rolled him helplessly at my feet. His tall hat was flung on shore
4: a dozen paces away. Ward's example inspired the rugby players and others to get ropes and plunge into the surf, saving most of the drowning seamen. I think that
1: the red-haired judge, with his six-foot-three body, his black frock coat and his tall silk hat, was the pluckiest man of all. He went in first and showed
4: us the way. Judge Ward's wife Anne was described as pretty. She is also an ardent primitive Methodist and the first national president of the New Zealand Women's Temperance Union. She was a prominent campaigner for votes for women. However, she did not appear to accompany him as he moved around New Zealand as a circuit judge, and Ward had a reputation as a ladies' man. After his death in 1913, at the age of 86, he left six generous bequests to New Zealand women, including a new house to one. His solicitor and executor removed all his papers, letters and diaries from his locked desk, and they were never seen again. Although it was not uncommon in Victorian times for people of the upper classes to have mistresses, his extracurricular activities may not have been approved by all his peers. Supreme Court Judge Henry Chapman, who Judge Ward had temporarily replaced in Dunedin, described Ward in 1861 as, quote, A man of infamous private character and has not had the decency to conceal it. Mrs Ward was probably unaware that her husband used a friend's house in Mary Hill as a boudoir to dally with his long-term mistress, a younger woman known by her pen name as Thorpe Talbot. They appeared to have been lovers for at least 20 years. Talbot was an accomplished, popular, prize-winning novelist of some international fame, but whose name and work have long been forgotten. His attachment to Thorpe Talbot appeared to have been a love match. She lived in his Dunedin house for 30 years, and married him there after his wife's death. Although he left her an annuity, she appears to have died in poor circumstances ten years after him and is buried in Anderson's Bay Cemetery. Ward and his first wife Anne lay side by side in the Burwood Anglican Cemetery Christchurch. I'm grateful for this material to former Otago Daily Times editor Jeff Adams and his book Judge Ward. This is Bill Southworth reporting for Heritage Matters.
1: This program has been generously sponsored by the Southern Heritage Trust. The Trust works to protect the city's heritage, particularly its fine old buildings and all the things that make Dunedin New Zealand's heritage capital. The Trust welcomes new members. It can be contacted at southernheritage.org.nz. That's southernheritage, all one word, dot